Okay, the next number six in your outline. Somebody was asking why we started with six in the number of questions that we're working through. I guess that's the next one. Um, we're going to talk about does God exist? And, um, you know, do we have to just accept the existence of God based on faith? That would be that presuppositionalism we talked about a few weeks ago. Or do we believe in God also because of the evidence? And the Bible just assumes the existence of God. Um, and it mostly devotes its proofs to proving that Yahweh is the true God. Because in that whole ancient culture, everybody believed in God or gods. And so it wasn't, there wasn't atheism per se. <clears throat> um, in Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth because by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. And so the Bible, you know, agrees or assumes that evidence is needed. <clears throat> and so what we're going to talk about is some of the logical, I mean, from experience and observation of nature and from logic, we can understand, um, find the proofs for God's existence. And so that's what we're going to talk about the first part of the evening. So there's several different arguments. If you remember that 55 question thing I gave you with um, 55 questions every parent should be able to answer the first one was, what are four arguments for the existence of God? So these would be six of them. <clears throat> uh, the first one is the sensus divinitas argument. I guess that's Latin, but we can make that out. Uh, the sense of the divine. Throughout the ages, uh, all people have had, a, all cultures have believed in God or gods. There's a God-shaped vacuum in, in man, and man is searching to fill that uh, void with, you know, he may create his own God, but so, that's the I don't think you're going to win too many arguments with this one. I think it's just a fact. It's true. Okay. It does seem like, no matter how much of an unbeliever somebody is, they always believe that there's something out there greater than us. Right, right. Even if it's extraterrestrials. Yeah. That's true. So that's a sense of the divine, of the existence of something. It's the yeah. Every man has a sense of a sense of the divine, a sense of God. Well, even if you just to help me, you know, right? They're 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 falling right. over the cliff. They know to call you out help. Yes, when people are in situations like that, they are automatically, you know, even if they haven't believed in God, they right. That's right. Now, there's a logical fallacy with this one. What does your kid say? What do you say to your kid when he says, everybody's doing it? You know. So it's not really, I don't think this makes good proof, necessarily, but, but it's a true statement, just a fact. <clears throat> the next one is Pascal's wager. Anybody know what that one is? That's the idea that if you, the atheist, tell me that there is no God and I'm wrong, well, we're all going to cease to exist. But if I'm right and there is a God, you, the atheist, are going to be in big trouble. 
So you really need to believe in God to cover your bases for fire insurance, right? And so I guess Blaise Pascal first stated that, so it's called Pascal's Wager. Now, that's not a very good argument. Um, it doesn't seem to me that that's going to lead one to recognition of sin and repentance, you know, and to just say, oh, I'm just going to believe in God just in case. This doesn't sound like much like belief to me. <clears throat> but that's one that's often used. The next one is the ontological argument. comes from the Greek word ontos, which means being. And this argument states that since we can conceive of God, he must exist. Because we can't conceive of things that don't exist. Now, nobody uses this one because nobody understands it. But you might say, well, unicorns don't exist. But my answer would be, horses exist and horns exist and you just mixed them. King Kong doesn't exist. Well, gorillas exist and you understand small and big, so you just combine two things that already exist. And so the idea is we can't really conceive of things that that don't exist. So Greg Kokel, who's an apologetics expert, says, I never touched this one. It's too hard to explain. Nobody's That's not true because the TV is full of vampires and uh, zombies and all this other stuff. Now, are well, you saying I, that I, there aren't any zombies? Huh? Am I saying there's no zombies? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Well, I know everybody looks at this and they're like, well, like you say, zombies don't exist, vampires don't exist, whatever, but really those are still just people with long teeth. I mean, you know, there, there's not... They're speaking of it and are immortal. That's true. That's true. So the ontological argument is, I think, valid, but it's just it's too hard to, to really fathom. People don't. People go. Oh, I don't believe it. Caleb asked me years ago. He says, "Well, I, I believe in the theory of evolution, so therefore it must exist. It must be true." You know, how do you answer that? Well, that your theory exists, but that doesn't mean the theory is true. I can have a theory that they didn't really go to the moon. They just took pictures of Nevada, and, and it's tricked us all. That's my conspiracy theory, but that doesn't make it true. So. Um, the next one is the cosmological argument. It comes from the Greek word cosmos, or cosmos, which means an apt and harmonious arrangement, and so that was used of um, the universe, the world, God so loved the world, the cosmos. And so the idea, we've already talked about this a little bit when we talked about the uh, problems with evolution last, last time. Um, the basic idea is that everything that exists has a cause, and since the universe exists, it had to have had a cause. And memory tip here, cause and cause sound alike, but that's not where it comes from. Now, you know, some people like Carl Sagan had that famous uh, series, Cosmos, I think they're redoing it now. You know, he made the statement that the universe is... Uh, all there is and was and ever will be. So the universe is eternal. Last time we talked about Stephen Hawking's book. He came out and said, we finally found something that doesn't have a cause. It's the universe. You know, so we just kind of made, made that up. But 
that's not possible because, um, as we talked about, the universe is expanding. If you go far enough back, you have to have started in some time in the past. How can he prove that it doesn't have a cause? Yeah, he, he can't. <laughs> but see, you can't prove him wrong, except that that goes against everything that we experience. And, you know, so for you to plead a special case like that, for him to plead a special case, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. What? It, it could be on his ability to understand, or he just hasn't discovered it yet. Right, right. That's yeah, he, they, they just they get by with making things up because they they don't like the alternative. Even if you believe in the Big Bang, you've got to ask, well, who made whatever it was that blew up? And yeah, you need a Big Banger, right? Yeah. Um, one of the problems with the idea that the universe is eternal is the Kalam cosmological argument. And that basically says you cannot have infinity going all the way back. Okay? Infinity has to... If you have an infinite regression going backwards, you can't get to now. It's kind of like trying to jump out of a, an infinitely deep hole. You've got to have something to start with. And so, this is not possible. Um, but this is trick question. Which line is longer? They're both infinite. Not an optical illusion. It's a logical illusion, I guess. Does that make sense? Do you have a problem with that? So, the universe had to have had a beginning. It could not have been eternal, per, per that argument. Uh, once, uh, atheist said uh, that the universe both caused itself to exist and caused the later states of the universe to exist. It can't cause itself to exist. It would have had to exist before it existed. I mean, you know, they just, that's nonsense. Um, and so what we find is that the first cause needs to be outside of time and space. Um, we talked about Stephen Hawking, and he recognized the problem of no time before the beginning. The first cause needs to be immaterial, because there was nothing that existed. The first cause needs to be powerful enough to create everything, and then it needs to be a personal agent. So, like the row of dominoes, you know, falling over. Something had to make the decision to push the first one. And so it requires uh, conscience or a personal agent. So what fits that description? Only God. Only God. Right. <clears throat> now, I heard someone ask the question, um, okay, you've convinced me that there must have been a God that fits these things. How do we get from this infinite being to the God of the Bible? How would you answer that? Sounds like a discussion I had with a couple of Mormons once. Yeah? Where I said, God says, I am the only one there was no God before me. And they said, yeah, for us. Meaning, other gods came before him for others. Oh. Uh, yeah. Well, I think the answer is if there was such a 
we've now proven that such a God exists, wouldn't he want to communicate with his people that he made? And so we have the revelation from Scripture, which is the, you know, him doing just that. So, um, the, the cosmological argument. Now, the teleological argument. Uh, this is the, the word teleos means the end, goal, or purpose. This is where the design argument comes from. And the Greek word, I mean, the, basically it says X is too complex or orderly or adaptive, apparently purposeful and or beautiful to have occurred randomly or accidentally. Therefore, X must have been created by a sentient, intelligent, wise and or purposeful being. God is that being. Therefore, God exists. <coughs> so, you have SETI, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The idea behind that was if they can hear some, you know, they listen to the random noise with these big, uh, not telescopes, whatever they are, radar things, <coughs> try to hear some kind of a pattern in the random noise that comes from space. If they can hear a pattern, they'll know that there's intelligence behind it. That's what that movie Contact was about with Jodie Foster years ago. They finally heard some pattern. And they were able to figure out it was math and translate it. Okay, so that proved, that, that would prove to an astronomer, if you can find information, that would prove to an astronomer that there was life and aliens in outer space. But the biologists, you know, they found the DNA... You know, but for some reason, that's not proof to them. And I think uh, at the end of the book, the movie Expelled, um, Ben Stein, I don't know if y'all have seen that, but Ben Stein was interviewing Dawkins, and in the very end, he says, so what do you do with this intelligent design thing? He's like, well, maybe it points to aliens, but it doesn't point to God. So he was okay with aliens. <coughs> And I think that, um, you know, we, that doesn't work. We need to turn the light off for a second. Okay. Um, you know, we hear about the Big Bang and we think about the ripples in a pond. That's always the way it's described, just for simplification. But that's an oversimplification. And when you... You know, we talked about how the, the beauty, the order, and that kind of stuff in the design argument. When you look at stuff like that, you know, if it was an explosion that just went everywhere, you're not going to have nicely formed galaxies clustered in different areas, um, different, things of different shots from the Hubble Space Telescope. They're willing to believe that disorder provokes order. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I just think that gives some perspective, you know, like this, the Psalm 19, which says the heavens declare the glory of God. Very pleased that the Hubble telescope came into being somehow. Yeah. So anyway, I think that should make us more in awe of what God has done. So, 
cosmological, cosmological argument, teleological argument, and then the moral arguments next. Um, I think this is one of the strongest ones. And so we're going to move to the next section in your outline. Um, and the moral argument is basically since everyone has a conscience and a concept of right and wrong, then there must reflect some higher conscience or higher moral absolute. You ever heard someone say you can't legislate morality? You know, uh, who says that? Usually people who want to be immoral, I think. But that's really the only thing you can legislate. Laws that aren't about morality, protecting people, things like that, really become more like tyranny. Or don't try to impose your morality on me. Yes. Yes, we hear that too. Um, And so people get away uh, away with saying that because I think today there's a lot of people who believe that morality is relative. And so we end up with no foundation for our laws and as a consequence they become more oppressive on the one hand and promote immoral behavior on the other hand. So our society is in bad shape. But the idea of moral relativism is an oxymoron. Moral relativism isn't moral. It's immoral. What's the difference between someone who is immoral and someone who is a moral relativist? Well, in some cultures, beheading somebody because they've insulted your religion is a moral thing to do. Yeah. But not here. Yeah. Yeah, But if if you're a moral relativist, you do whatever you want. If you're an immoral person, you do whatever you want. If there's no difference between the two, then they're the same. So you have no mores. Yeah, so moral relativism is just immorality. Morality. But they say that because it sounds better. It's slick marketing to use the phrase moral relativism. So it's not just a shifting of the level of standards from one place to another. Well, that's how they're going to define it. They're going to say that it's up to each person to decide what's right or wrong. But the immoral person is doing that same thing. He decides, well, for me, this is this is right. So they just had to redefine it because they think they still have a conscience and it bothers them if they can't justify their actions. And so the idea behind moral relativism is that morality is subjective. It's up to the individual to decide, the subject to decide. It's not objective. It's not outside of the per- above the person. So it's kind of like, I like vanilla and you like chocolate. Okay? And that's all it is. I read in California, I think coming up the next few years, Jerry Brown cited that teachers have to advocate homosexuality. That they, uh, they have to encourage it. And if they remain silent on it, it will be taken as a sign that they are against it. And that's not allowed. Really? I had not heard that. I'll look up the website for you. So how would, you ask, how would you answer a person when he says um, that morality is relative or subjective? Maybe you could ask him a question. Do you believe that torturing babies for fun is okay? And he might say, no, I don't think that's okay. Do you think there, anybody would think that that's okay? Well, no, I would think that nobody would think that was okay. So we have a universal moral 
absolute that torturing babies, you know, for fun is wrong. All cultures would agree. Well, if we have a moral absolute, then then morality is not relative. It's kind of an either-or situation. And so the question becomes, where does that come from? Now, I say probably will agree. He might be smart enough to know that he's walking into a trap. So he might say, I think it's fine. But the way to, whenever you have someone who is you know, trying to stand by his logic of, or illogic of the atheism, you know, what you've got to do is watch their reaction. Frank Turek tells a story about an ethics professor who assigned a paper to the students. And this one student was an atheist, and he was going to write on the fact that morality was relative and that there was no such thing as justice and fairness. And he did everything right, got all the footnotes in there, doc, you know, Chicago manual style. He turned it in a nice blue folder, and the professor read it and wrote, F, I don't like blue. Gave it back. And the student got his paper back, and he came storming into the office. What's going on? I did everything right, and you gave me an F. He goes, no. But was your paper the one that says that morality is I like vanilla and you like chocolate? He goes, yeah. He goes, I don't like blue. F. <laughs> You're done. And the, student, and the student was trapped. He realized that his whole entire paper was not worth, you know, the paper it was printed on because... He was complaining about that's not fair. <laughs> so, you know, if you do have a conversation with someone that's a, a moral relativist, just, you know, watch how they react when someone cuts in line in front of them or, or something like that. <clears throat> um, is morality absolute? Is lying always wrong? Was Corey Tim Boone wrong? lie and say, there are no Jews in my house, go away. Because she was saving their lives. Were the Hebrew midwives wrong to say, those women are having the baby before we even get there? Because they were saving lives. So, in those situations, I think you could argue that a greater good was accomplished by telling a lie. Okay. So, I don't think the word is, the word absolute is probably a Although we'll, we'll use it, it's really not the best term. It's probably better to say that morality is objective. And so in the same situation, for everybody, this is wrong. And so it's an objective morality, not an absolute. That's not situational ethics. There was a famous book years back about that. That's more towards moral relativism. But in certain situations... You know, if you choose not to speak because it would not be speaking the truth in love, you couldn't speak the truth in love, then, you know, I think that there are certain guidelines like that. So, if there are moral objectives, objective morals, then the bottom line is that that we have a, the moral argument for the the existence of God. And Romans 2.14 talks about that. For whenever the Gentiles do not have the law, do by nature the things required by the law, these who do not have the law are a law to themselves, 
They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts as their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or else defend them. C.S. Lewis points out that when someone quarrels, they are not just saying that what that other person does displeases only them. They are appealing to some higher wrong that's being committed. That what the person really did was wrong. And so where does the idea, where does this idea of fairness and morality come from? Well, we've been analyzing all the different worldviews. So the the pantheist view is, um, according to the Indian Philosophy, Volume Two, says the moral world, which assumes the isolation and independence of its members, belongs to the world of appearances. So long as we occupy the standpoint of individualistic moralism, we are in the world of samsara, or reincarnation based on past actions, with its hazards and hardships. The end of morality is to lift oneself up above one's individuality and become one with the impersonal spirit of the universe. So after reading that four or five times, I can translate it now. And it says, since everything is one thing, you can't have opposite things like good and evil. They just appear to be different. It's an illusion. However, you must live in that illusion for your accumulation of good or bad karma and your status in your next life. So although good and evil don't exist, your good and bad deeds affect your karma. And eventually you rise above the individualism and morality and achieve the ultimate goal of non-existence. Is it that where Christian science comes down? Um, Christian science is kind of a little bit of that. Um, But that's the New Age, that's Buddhism, Hinduism. Pantheism, doesn't that see God in everything? Not that he fills the universe like the scriptures say, but that... Everything is one. Everything is God. We are God. We just need to recognize uh, a while back, I ran across an interview with Deepak Chopra in the Dallas Morning News, and they asked him, is there any one religion that's primarily the basis of your thinking for this book? <coughs> he said, no, I'm influenced a lot in recent times by the more metaphysical aspects of Buddhist thought, because by and large, I think Buddhist thought, nonviolent. You never heard of a Buddhist terrorist or a Buddhist going to war. So it's kind of interesting to me to watch Buddhist behavior and metaphysics. The reason is that Buddhist philosophy is based a lot on the idea that there's no such thing as a separate self, that love and kindness, which are, of course, the precepts of every religion, do not come out of a sense of moral obligation, but from the experience of inseparability, that we're part of a web of being and that the whole ecosystem is, in a sense, a living organism. And if we destroy it, we destroy ourselves. So, that's what he's talking about. We're all one. and There's no moral obligation. We just got to be nice to ourselves and we'll be nice to everybody as ourselves. So. <clears throat> so, the pantheist basically has to deny the existence of good and evil. There is no such thing as morality for them. Because of that. It's all an illusion. Okay. The next uh, thing we're going to talk about is the atheist or the naturalist. How does he answer the uh, problem of morality? Uh, 
the first answer that they will usually give is that it's survival of the fittest. Now, survival of the fittest means I've got to get my genes into the next generation. And so, not it's not a guided process where for the good of the species, I do X. So, a guy jumping on a hand grenade to save his comrades it cannot be explained as a good deed by the survival of the fittest because he's not going to get his genes into the next generation. And he doesn't care under that you know, morality is in the genes. He doesn't care about anybody else. It's all about me. It's a selfish thing. Okay? So, morality is in the genes, and if, it, the, if it's in the genes, then if you have blue eyes, that's because of your genes. If you have brown eyes, that's because of your genes. If you are immoral, it's because of your genes, and you can't help it. If you're moral, it's because of your genes, but people still take credit for it. Michael Ruse says that, and this is the guy I think that we quoted earlier who said that evolution was a religion. He says also, he says, morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction and has no being beyond that. So, if that's true, then well, how do they deal with homosexuality? Because they never get their genes into the next generation. Right? That should have gone. That could have gone extinct ages ago. And but our society promotes it. No reproduction there. Right. What about rape? Rape would seem to be okay in the survival of the fittest role because that's going to get your, mm-hmm. you know, genes into the next generation. But we condemn that. Um, and survival of the fittest, I mentioned, it promotes selfishness, but C.S. Lewis says, you know, selfishness, selfishness has never been admired. And you would, it would seem to justify genocide of, you know, like Hitler did. So. Another atheist named Kai Nielsen says, I can get to the good of self-respect on a purely secular basis, though it has come into our culture, of course, through a religious tradition. But validity is independent of origin. And what he's trying to do is say, he's trying to appeal to the genetic fallacy, which says that, you know, you don't go by the source of something, you go by whether it's true or, or, um, or not. And, like, I was raised a Christian, so I'm a Christian. This person was raised a Hindu, in a Hindu family, so they're Hindu. That's that doesn't make it relative. The issue is who matches reality. But in this situation, it does matter that it comes from religion because the naturalist, the materialist, who says everything is just molecules, they can't explain where it comes from. And so he's trying to claim morality as being um, just self-existent, that we can come up with it on our own, and say that it's not important that it came from God. But in this case, origin is everything. <clears throat> A guy named Mackey, J.L. Mackey, said that moral properties are unlikely to have arisen in the ordinary course of events without an all-powerful God to create them. And this is an atheist. So, how does he deal with that? He turns around and says, well, universal moral properties don't exist. They're just subjective values. 
So he flips back to the moral relativism. And Sam Harris, everybody heard of him, one of the new atheists, he says, um, in talking about morality, he says, in our case, we are talking about genetics, biology, psychology, sociology, and economics. Now, I view this space of all possible experience as a kind of moral landscape with peaks that correspond to the heights of well-being and valleys that correspond to the lowest suffering. So he's saying that what makes something moral is that it causes human flourishing and if it's, it's bad, if it causes human suffering. Okay, so that's so it just seems like we've got an objective way to come up with morals. We've got all those ologies up there that we can, you know, scientific things that we can talk about. <clears throat> but the problem is, what his standard of what makes something good or bad is just an arbitrary thing. Why did he pick human flourishing? Because humans aren't anything special. They're not any better than termites. Okay. In a, in a naturalistic world view, humans are not created in the image of God and special. And so he's just, what happens when the, if, you know, if evolution were true, what happens when the next thing evolves past humans? Then does that thing, that flourishing, is that what's, you know, the, uh, you know, X-Men or whatever? It's their flourishing that's what, what makes things good, and their suffering that what makes things bad, and now we suffer. So if you press a, a, a naturalist, atheist, about the problems with uh, survival of the fittest, then they usually will flip over to the social contract theory. And that says that morality is decided by the culture. Or the group. And this is the thing you get in your average college sociology class. And they say, you go to all these different cultures and you, they've got all these different values. And so they conclude that morality is relative. First thing it recognizes that if I say 2 plus 2 is 4 and you say 2 plus 2 is 5 and you say 2 plus 2 is 6, we don't conclude that nobody knows what 2 plus 2 is. Okay? Just because they're different doesn't mean nobody's right. Um, <clears throat> second, although there are a lot of differences in cultures, there are certain things that are always bad in every culture. Murder is always bad. Stealing is always bad. If you murder somebody, they want revenge. If you steal from them, they want re restoration, retribution, whatever, reparations. <clears throat> So third, for the sake of argument, let's say we all agree that morality is relative. We all decide we can come up with a list of standards for which will be good for our own society. Okay. Um, each person ought to keep, act in keeping with his society's code. They have their values, we have ours. We don't judge them. That's just the way they do it. Okay. Well, internally within our own culture, how do I force our group think on any individual. If it's, if it's a social contract, then it should be. It's, it's a voluntary thing. We all agree. Well, what do I do to someone who doesn't agree? That's been discussed quite a bit comparing this uh, gay marriage thing to the Roe versus Wade a number of years ago. 
where instead of, they, as they say, letting their culture come around and accepting it, they legislated it before the culture was ready, and mm -hmm. they made a lot of hard fights over it. They said the same thing was true with gay marriage. Don't legislate it. Let the culture change to where it accepts it. Yeah, just a, a very small number of people are, are definitely getting laws passed and affecting those things. So, internally, within our own culture, we can't really force a social contract on somebody. And externally, between countries, how can we force our morality on other countries? <clears throat> um, in our Declaration of Independence, it said we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. But the United Nations Charter just says that humans are born free and equal in dignity. And it doesn't make any reference to a Creator. So they kind of come up, they kind of go along with the social contract theory. And as, you, as a result, they're pretty powerless. They don't really have the justification to say that what's going on in this country or the Uganda or whatever is bad. They don't really... It's the, it's the United States with its Christian values that goes to help people. And the United Nations, a lot of times, is just... They don't care. Um, and what's to say that something is really wrong just because a bunch of people got together and said it was wrong? What if a church denomination got together and said dancing is wrong? Does that make it wrong? No. That's the next denomination may decide it's not. <clears throat> what about a gang that says you have to murder somebody in order to be a member? That's a social contract. What about Martin Luther King? Okay. He went against the culture, the social contract, the Jim Crow laws. He was a social reformer. How can you have a social reformer with, under the social contract theory? If everybody says it's fine, then it's fine. Okay? If it's, it's legal. Okay? So you really wouldn't ever have a social reformer if, if we had a social contract theory, if that was true. And you can never have a immoral society. And so what it really boils down is to might makes right, and the people that have the power impose whatever they think is right on the others. And if you go to, after World War II, we had the Nuremberg trials. Well, we won the war, so does that what made it okay for us to say the Nazis were wrong? Or were they really wrong? Okay. So. Is that social contract theory making sense and how it doesn't work? Say Waddleton, I think, was Planned Parenthood president. He wrote this, made a speech. Says, like most parents, I think that a sense of moral responsibility is one of the greatest gifts I can give my child. But teaching morality doesn't mean imposing my moral values on others. It means sharing wisdom, giving reasons for believing as I do, and then trusting others to think and judge for themselves. My parents' morals were deeply rooted in religious conviction, but tempered by tolerance, the essence of which is respect for other people's views. They taught me that reasonable people may differ on moral issues, and that fundamental respect for others is morality of the highest order. 
I've devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my daughter, Felicia, can inherit that legacy. I hope the tolerance and respect I show her as a parent is reinforced by the work she sees me doing every day, fighting for the right of all individuals to make their own moral decisions about childbearing. Seventy-five years ago, Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood to liberate individuals from the mighty engines of repression. And she, as she wrote, the men and women of America are demanding that. They be allowed to mold their lives, not at the arbitrary command of church or state, but as their conscience and judgment may dictate. I'm proud to continue that struggle of defending the rights of all people to their own beliefs. When others try to inflict their views on me, my daughter or anyone else, that's not morality. It's tyranny. It's unfair. And it's un-American. Was it Margaret Sanger that believed in uh, eugenics? Yes. She was the founder of Planned Parenthood. So this is a very persuasively written, worded speech. Um, it sounds sensible. It sounds reasonable. sounds tolerant. But the fundamental flaw is there is no such thing as morally neutral ground. And that's what she's trying to appeal to. Um, she doesn't want, she says she doesn't want to impose her moral values, but she gets laws passed to impose her moral values on us, right? And she says if we disagree with her, we are tyrannous, unfair, and un-American. In 1994, they passed a law that said it's illegal to block an abortion clinic. And the president for Planned Parenthood stood up and said, this law goes to show that no one can force their point of view on someone else. So they just succeeded in forcing their, forcing their point of view on us. So, um, Greg Colville tells another example of... Uh, Values clarification. We heard that in education circles in the past. I don't know if it's still going, but that was the idea that students get together and they make up their own values, clarify their values. And so this teacher told the students to go get in their little huddles and they could come up with their social contract or whatever they thought was right. And they all came back to the teacher. Says, teacher, we've decided it's okay to cheat on tests. And she goes, hmm, well, this is my class, and I don't think it's okay to cheat on tests, and if you cheat, I'm going to flunk you. So much for value clarification. That's right. <laughs> the kid got it. The teacher still didn't get it. So she resorted to might makes right. <clears throat> Dualism is another answer that sometimes will come up you know, from an atheist to explain morality. Um, this is the idea that there's a good force and an evil force, and they're equal, and they're at, at war, like Star Wars, the force be with you, Darth Vader. My question is, does Darth Vader know he's the bad guy? Does he, maybe he thinks he's the good guy. You know, for us to be able to say he's the bad guy, there has to be a standard above the good and bad force in order for us to make that judgment of who's good and who's bad. So that's not a very good explanation. Um, a lot of times atheists will just say everyone knows that this is right or wrong. Well, we would agree 
that everyone knows. We have a reason everyone knows, because God gave man a conscience. They're trying to just claim everyone knows, but they have no grounding. They can't explain how everyone knows. So. Greg Kopel gives the analogy of, you don't have to believe in writers to read. But if there were no writers, you wouldn't have anything to read. You don't have to believe in God to have a moral conscience. But if there were no God, you wouldn't have objective morality. And he also goes on to talk about, Kopel says, when you say that some absolute moral laws exist, you're saying that immaterial things like moral laws, which aren't made out of moral stuff, certainly do exist. Therefore, materialism as a worldview is false. Instead, it's reasonable to believe in things you don't see and can't test with the five senses. Strict empiricism would be false then. And so what he's saying is, naturalists only believe in stuff you can see and touch. And morality, morals, are not physical things that you can see and touch. So if a naturalist tries to talk about morality, then... He's admitting that there are things that don't exist physically. And so um, his, his complaint about God not being existing because it's not physical doesn't hold water. The Bible says, oh, let's, let's see here first. Well, we'll get to that in a second. We know what the Bible says. God created man. God made the rules. He revealed them to us in Scripture. He placed them inside us. Our conscience tells us when we do bad things and causes guilt. So we can either rationalize away those feelings or cry out to God to save us. And then once we are saved, then our motivation is internal and we love God and we love people. I think the bottom line is that it's only because we live in a society with God-given morality that the pantheist and the naturalist and the pluralist can have their opinions. Because they can't really live them. Um, James Spiegel wrote a book called The Making of an Atheist. He said that in 2009 in Britain, they had started appearing on buses that said, there's probably no gods. Now stop worrying and enjoy life. That's Richard Dawkins, actually, in the picture. <clears throat> and um, that was kind of funny because when William Lane Craig went to England, the atheists wanted Dawkins to debate William Lane Craig. And Dawkins refused. And the atheists ran this ad. There's probably no Dawkins who come to the debate anyway. And so they actually had this big lecture with William Lane Craig there in, in England and um, they had an empty chair for Dawkins <clears throat> and he debated the empty chair I guess they also put these ads were in D.C. why believe in God just be good for goodness sake <clears throat> so I guess some questions are can you really be happy if there's no God they're saying there's no God just you know enjoy life if there's no afterlife. If this is all there is, that's pretty depressing. We're going to talk about the meaning of life in the uh, next week or week after. One guy, atheist, says, it's life is so depressing, you just 
need to go buy something or read a novel to escape or do drugs. You know, there's no purpose to life. Can you even know what goodness is without God? Because that's what we've been talking about. Without God, there is no morality there's, you know, for the pantheist or the atheist. And can you really be good for goodness sake? You know, Jesus was said, you know, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? His answer is, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Right? Because mankind is not good, and we'll talk about that more when we talk about the nature of man. <clears throat> Spiegel's book is very interesting. Um, one of his main points is that atheism is not chosen because it's logical and has the best answers to the worldview's questions. It's chosen primarily because a person is or wants to be sexually immoral, and it's very clear that it isn't acceptable if you believe in the God of the Bible. Atheism as a worldview has no morality, so it wins. The list of famous, famous atheists who led disgusting lives is impressive. Rousseau, Percy Blythe, Shelley, Marx, Ibsen, Tolstoy, Hemingway, Bertrand Russell, Sartre, Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead was the sociologist that went to Samoa and came back and wrote a book saying they have the best society, they just have free sex everywhere. And it hasn't screwed them up. And we found out later that's not true. But everybody liked her book. He says, one person's conduct impacts one's scholarly projects. So why do we give any credibility to these folks? Their writings were calculated to justify and minimize the shame of their wicked lifestyles. So these are the arguments for the existence of God. Um, I get stronger as they go down the list. And uh, I think that the cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments are the best. And when people deny the existence of God, whatever reason they give is just an excuse under the real reason of I don't want to be responsible to God. I want to do whatever I want. And we, we read that from Aldous Huxley a few weeks ago. He said, I made up my own... Um, philosophy so that I could do what I want. Any questions? Comments? <clears throat>